This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 28, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Vivian Sloan joins us to talk about collecting DNA from cave sediments to reveal ancient occupants, like Neanderthals and Denisovans. Jen Goldbeck interviews Andrew Shulman, author of Science Blind, Why Our Intuitive Theories About the World Are So Often Wrong, for this month's book segment. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from The Daily News site. We're still getting free transcripts from Scribby.com this week, so a special thanks to them, Scribby.com. Audio transcription perfected. 75 cents a minute at 99% accuracy. Scribby.com, the best deal on the internet for audio transcription. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on dog breeds. This is your territory, Dave, so I won't talk too long. The study looked at about half of all dog breeds in order to figure out their relationships. So this isn't about domestication, per se, or about where dogs came from, but more about where dog breeds came from. Right. This this is not a study about where dogs came from. In fact, that wasn't even a question the researchers were interested in. They were really interested in, in we've got a wide variety of dogs today, everything from the Great Dane to the Chihuahua, and we have more than 350 breeds. Where did those breeds come from? We know a lot of the breeds are actually pretty recent. Most of them arose within the last couple hundred years. But where did the dogs that make these breeds, were they sort of in their breeds of their own before that? What's sort of the history of the more recent and also the more ancient breeds? And as you say, this is not that all of a phenomenon. Like some of these dogs have only been around for a couple hundred years. So why don't we have documentation that just tells us the answer to these questions? Well, Sarah, we're scientists. We like to rely on genetics instead of <laughs> documentation, which may or may not be accurate. And that's that's basically what the researchers did here. They looked at more than 1,300 dogs representing 161 breeds. So that's about half the breeds that we know of. And they compared 150,000 spots on each dog's genome to build this sort of family tree. And you actually can see a picture of this tree uh, on the site. And what was really interesting, what they found is that almost all the breeds fell into 23 larger groupings that they call clades. And the clades tended to bring together dogs with similar traits. So you might have a clade that had boxers, bulldogs, and Boston terriers, 
which have all been bred for strength, and a separate clade where you might have herders like sheepdogs, corgis, and collies. Um, and the groupings of these different breeds that share a particular jobs suggest that ancient breeders likely bred dogs for specific purposes, and that in the past 200 years, people subdivided those larger groups into breeds. One of the things that surprised me about what came out of this data was that there's a little bit of pug in a lot of dogs. <laughs> there is a little bit of pug, and, and, and this is really interesting. This is, you know, the pug, which is one of the earliest small dogs we know of, it originated in China, but it was actually used in Europe from the 1500s onward to shrink other breeds. So you had a large dog, you wanted to maybe create a mini version of that dog, you bring a pug in. <laughs> and so we actually see a lot of pugs in other breeds that really have nothing to do with pugs. So one of the things I was wondering reading this is that, you know, purebreds are kind of notorious for some of the genetic defects that seem to have been bred into them. So can any of those defects be better understood by looking at this data set? Yeah, well, that was another really interesting thing is the researchers found that some common genetic defects, actually by comparing breeds that have the defects and seeing what sort of clades they are in, you might actually be able to trace the history of where the defect originated. What about the next steps with this? Is it more dogs, full genome scans, both? What else could we learn from getting more data? Well, right. So experts are saying that we need more breeds because there are only about half the number of breeds here, more of the genome. You know, from this additional data, we can really get a better sense of where all the breeds came from and also sort of refine what we know now because we are dealing with limited data here. And the more data we have, some more surprises may pop out. Now we have a story on a big step forward in artificial wombs. The headline calls these fluid-filled biobags. I'll have to ask you why in a second, Dave. <laughs> uh, but basically, this is a new way to try to help along premature babies born very early at the edge of viability. And it is a bag filled with fluids, Dave. Can you describe it for us? Basically what it is, I mean, when you think about a placenta, if you want to be simplistic about it, it's a bag filled with amniotic fluid and this fluid is exchanged uh, by the fetus and it gives the fetus nutrition and it protects it. And that's essentially what the researchers did here is they created a bag that has tubes coming out of it that help exchange the fluid. Uh, but it sort of looks, if you look at the, the picture on the site, it kind of looks like a lamb in a bag. Yeah, right. So this was tested on lambs. How did that go? I mean, they put very, very early lambs in there and they got older lambs out of it? Yeah. Well, they took lambs. They looked, worked with eight lambs and the lambs were delivered by cesarean section. They were delivered at about 110 days gestation, which is the equivalent of 23 or 24 weeks in humans, which is really at the edge of viability. And the reason we're really concerned about this is because in the U.S. alone, there's about 90,000 cases. Actually, in the U.S. and Europe, there's about 90,000 cases uh, a year where babies that enter the world very early. And when these babies enter the world that early, the prognosis can really be grim with survival rates ranging from 10% to 50%. And that doesn't include high rates of brain damage, lung disease, and other complications. So how did the lambs do in this artificial version? Of they the actually placenta? did. Yeah, they actually did pretty well. In fact, one of the lambs that they actually let survive, because a lot of these lambs, they sacrificed to sort of figure out how, how well they were dealing with this. But actually, one of the lambs has lived now more than a year uh, since being born. One of the things they talked about a lot in this story was that premature infants have a big problem with breathing, that they can't breathe on their own, but the machines are almost worse for them. So how does this resolve that? Right. The current machines, these sort of artificial lung machines they put them on, can actually really damage their lungs. And so what's 
better about this environment is it really replicates what the fetus would be doing, which is sort of breathing in this amniotic fluid instead of like trying to breathe in something that it's not used to breathing in at that stage in its development where maybe its lungs aren't fully developed yet. So this is okay for lambs. Is this going to be possible to even test with human newborns? Well, that's the hope, although they're not anywhere near that yet. I mean, they really have to sort of optimize this. They have to test it in more animals. But that's really the eventual hope. When we have all these babies born very early, what do you do with them in a way that is actually going to make them better and not worse? Last up, we have a story on bots that build buildings. I came to this story from video. There's really good footage of a giant crane-like arm putting down layer after layer of foam that builds up to a very large open roof structure. My reaction was, first, why haven't we done this before? Let's print all the buildings. But thinking a little bit longer, I realized this is a tough thing to do. You can't live in a foam semicircle. If you want a useful building, you need different materials, roofs, plumbing, like those types of things. Which of these things can this bot do? Uh, well, it can do the foam, can also build those types of structures from sand, from metal chains, which would weld together, and even ice, which would first deposit as water and then freeze. This is not a completely new concept. Construction bots have been built before. What's novel about this one? Well, right. So we, we even have 3D printers, right? And we can mm-hmm. print small objects with these 3D printers. And what's new about this is that, first of all, this is the largest structure that a robot like this has ever built. But also, it sort of does some things that other robots don't do. It has this, um, first of all, it's very autonomous. In this experiment, the researchers kind of sent the robot out into the world, well, maybe just right outside the lab, and sort of it did the whole thing by itself. But it also has like this very flexible arm. It uses sort of lasers to guide it. It has all these applications, which not only make it very accurate, but able to do a lot of this stuff by itself uh, without any human involvement. What are the motivations for an autonomous construction platform like this? I mean, let's start with the basics and we'll get to the sci-fi stuff later. There's a lot of, you know, shipping stuff everywhere. Construction can be very dangerous. Somebody dies at a construction site every 10 minutes. So you don't have to worry about robots dying uh, until they rise up against us. Okay, okay. You're, you're obviously <laughs> heading down the sci-fi path. So let's talk about the sci-fi implications of a construction bot. Right. So, I mean, very cool on Earth, but even cooler on the moon or Mars, because theoretically, you send this thing up there, it knows how to build with what's available. It also can sense things like radiation. So it might know the best places to build or the best structures it needs to build to sort of protect against environmental hazards. And we're not talking about just single buildings now. We're talking about entire towns, cities built by robots on the moon. One lonely construction (laughs) bot building a whole city. Maybe a couple lonely construction bots. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got, speaking of sort of sci-fi, we've got devices that you can wear on your fingers that help you sense objects, virtual objects, actually kind of touch them. And another story uh, about whispering, how whale calves whisper to their mothers to avoid being overheard and eaten by killer whales. We actually have audio of that whispering. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story on the first state-by-state in U.S. analysis of hepatitis C cases. Also, a post-mortem on the March for Science, actually the marches, the many, many marches for science that happened last weekend, including some profiles of the people that were involved. 
and why others didn't participate and why. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference. So it's important to know where your food comes from. Thankfully, for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers delicious, quality food, courtesy of over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers, right to your door, supporting a more sustainable food system and setting the highest standards for ingredients. Plus, with Blue Apron's freshness guarantee, you can be sure that every ingredient in your delivery will arrive ready to cook, or they'll make it right. Some of the meals available in April include spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salada, sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice, parmesan-crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli, and baby broccoli and fontina paninis with hard-boiled egg and arugula salad. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science mag. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash science mag. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Ancient DNA has taught us a lot about the other hominins that once walked the earth, like Neanderthals and Denisovans, but there just aren't that many fossils to get DNA from. Now, Vivian Sloan and colleagues have shown that ancient DNA from extinct mammals like woolly mammoths and, yes, even extinct hominins like Neanderthals can be found where no skeletal remains are available. So hi, Vivian. Uh, Thanks for being here. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Let's start with, you know, up until this point, we've relied on fossils to get DNA from these old people, I guess we could call them. But now you decided to go back to some of the same places that fossils have been found and take a closer look at the sediments there. So the soil and the layers. Uh, Where exactly did you harvest these sediments from? So for the collection of samples, we were lucky to collaborate with some amazing people, um, and they excavate in prehistorical sites all over Europe. And we focused on sites where we already knew um, from the archaeological evidence that ancient humans were once living there. Overall, we sampled in seven archaeological sites, and we covered the time period from 14,000 to over 550,000 years ago. What kinds of DNA did you find when you kind of sifted through the sediments? So when we took the first look at the sequences that we generated, uh, we saw that more than 80% of our sequences were unidentifiable. And then out of those that we could identify, the majority were of microbial origin. And since we wanted to mainly focus on hominin DNA, we went back into the lab and we did an additional laboratory step called capture. And this is where we can target and fish out DNA fragments that is of interest to us. And so in this case, we were looking for DNA fragments that have similarities to mammalian mitochondrial DNA, and then even more specifically to human mitochondrial DNA. How were you able to tell that the DNA that you were looking at was very old and not from a modern human or modern mammal? So the authentication of the DNA sequences as being really ancient in origin is, I would say, at the heart of this paper. And mostly what we look for is evidence in the DNA sequences themselves for a specific type of damage that tends to accumulate over time. 
And it's the signature of DNA damage that allows us to distinguish between DNA fragments that are, let's say, likely or more likely to be ancient and those that come from present-day contamination. What organisms were you able to find? What mammals? And um, what, what identified them as these different kinds of species? So something that allows us to know that what we see is really ancient uh, DNA is that we find DNA of uh, extinct animals. So we find DNA of woolly mammoths, and we've got woolly rhinos, we've got cave bears and cave hyenas. And this is a corroboration that the DNA that is damaged is really of ancient origin. Mm-hmm. And then to be able to tell where they came from, uh, which organisms are there, uh, we compare our sequences to a database of nearly 800 mammalian mitochondrial genomes. And then we use a software that already existed to assign each sequence to a mammalian family um, based on the similarities between the sequences that we've generated and the reference genomes in the database. You did find, you know, woolly mammoths, woolly rhinos, but you, you also found ancient humans. What ancient humans did you find and about how old do you think those samples are? So in nine different sediment samples that originate from four archaeological sites, we were able to tell that there is ancient hominin DNA. And eight of these uh, originate from Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA. And in one sample that is from Denisova Cave, we find uh, mitochondrial DNA of the Denisovan type. How old are the samples that you found of these ancient humans? So it's difficult to tell from the sequences themselves how old they are, uh, but we can rely on dating of the layers that we sampled. Most of the samples that yielded hominin DNA come from the late Pleistocene, and this is a time period that is up to 128,000 years ago. Mm, okay. Where do you think this type of sedimented DNA, if you will, comes from? I mean, is this just a person died there and now we can find some DNA that they left uh, when their body decomposed? Yeah, this is a good question. And um, I have to say, we thought a lot about how to address this. Um, I can say that what we see in most cases is that the hominin DNA is spread relatively evenly within the sediment. And this could then be compatible with it coming from, yes, the decay of soft tissue or also from excrements. And this has been suggested in other studies before us. Um, We did have one outlier, and that is one sample that contained 500 times more Neanderthal DNA than other samples taken in very close proximity in the cave. And for this one, we speculate that perhaps there was a tiny piece of bone or a tooth fragment within the sediment that was too small to be noticed during sampling. You mentioned uh, mitochondrial DNA a couple times. Why did you focus on on that part of the genome or, you know, was it easier to find that that part of the DNA? Mitochondrial DNA is a smaller part of our genome. It evolves faster, so it allows us better to distinguish between different types of animals. And we have better reference genomes for it. So as a first start to see if we were at all able to see hominin DNA, this seemed like a, an easier way to go. Right. A lot of this paper focuses on if this was possible and the best way to go about detecting ancient hominin DNA. But now that you've shown that we can do that, what new kinds of information do you think we're going to be able to, to glean about the past and about these, these other people? So the beauty of working with sediment, unlike fossils, um, is that sediments is present at any archaeological site, and there's plenty of it. So really, the options for research questions are nearly endless. Hmm. So one of the first ideas is to go ahead and apply this methodology to the very large number of prehistorical sites where there are no human remains and where it's unclear who made the stone tools, who made the artifacts that are found there. And maybe using DNA from sediments, we could sort of weigh in on that question. Um, Another idea is by expanding the sampling to, say, other time spans, other regions of the world, we could also gain new insights about the geographical ranges or the patterns of migrations of ancient hominins 
and maybe how these changed over time. Great. All right, Vivian, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. This was fun. Vivian Sloan and colleagues write about harvesting ancient hominin DNA from sediments. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Golbeck, and welcome to the April book segment of the podcast. This month, we're looking at Science Blind, Why Our Intuitive Theories About the World Are So Often Wrong by Andrew Stolman. He's a cognitive and developmental psychologist, and he argues that much of the difficulties we have understanding or accepting science throughout our lives into adulthood often originate in intuitive models that we build about the world when we're kids. Here's Andrew Stolman. When you look into learning and knowledge, there's two things that become apparent that are really helpful to look at from a psychological perspective. One is the origin of those ideas, and sometimes the origins go all the way back to infancy, and sometimes they go just to everyday experiences. And the other thing that's really important is looking at how that knowledge changes. And I think our everyday ideas about how knowledge changes is an accretion model. We just acquire more facts um, and we enrich our knowledge base. Uh, but in all the cases I talk about in the book, uh, those are cases where you don't just enrich your knowledge base, that your knowledge base as set up in childhood is fundamentally problematic. So understanding the world can be tough, especially when you're a kid and just learning about it. Think about trying to figure out what it means to be alive. It's actually a pretty complicated thing to figure out what's alive, let alone what's dead. And when we talk about death with euphemisms, it can actually screw up the way kids intuitively think about it. So in some domains, the primary source of knowledge is language. And life is a great example because as a child, you see things moving, but you don't necessarily see things being alive. But the people around you use that word and similar words like living and breathing, growing. And so you try to map those terms to what you understand. And the most natural connection children make is between life and motion. And not just any motion, but self-directed motion, things that seem to be moving in a purposeful way. Beyond just life, then there's also death, which is not an obvious state of being or lack of being. And children hear euphemisms for death, like the dead are resting in peace, or they've gone to a different place, or they're dearly departed. And so they... Think of death as a kind of sleep or as a kind of travel because they don't have the framework for thinking about both life and death in biological terms. It turns out these intuitive theories pop up all over the place when we're learning science, like the shape of the earth. And it's not that these intuitive theories are necessarily even simpler. They can actually be really complicated. The way that you know, children understand the shape of the earth is through the lens of their experience navigating the earth and the ground to them appears flat, so they have no reason to expect the Earth as a whole would be anything other than flat. And then objects, when they drop them, uh, fall down, so they have no reason to think that the effect of gravity is to pull something inward as opposed to downward. Left to their own devices, they would never posit that the Earth is round in any sense, but they hear that it's round from adults. So they interpret round in very different ways. Round like a disc that's essentially flat, and, and objects on the disc are well-supported, or maybe even something more complicated, like round, like a, a truncated sphere that's essentially round, but it's got flat parts on which people live. And those flat parts are, are just on top of the earth so that people are well supported. Because, of course, if people lived under the earth, they'd fall off. Those models aren't simple. In fact, in some, in some of the models that children create are actually quite complicated, much more complicated than just a sphere. The, the most interesting example is a hollow sphere, 
where they understand the Earth as being round, but they think of it more as a snow globe, so that the sky forms a dome, and it's the top of the sphere, and people live on a flat plane within the sphere. And if we don't break out of these intuitive theories, they can stick around and lead to rejection of well-established science around things like evolution, vaccines, and climate change. For people who are already active in advocacy for science, it might provide a new perspective on how to do that better, understanding some of the opposition to science. Science has been incredibly politicized. I think it's because the, the ideas that people are rejecting are ideas that are counterintuitive. And so it doesn't matter if all the science supports those ideas like climate change and vaccination and evolution, human evolution in particular, the fact that those ideas themselves are counterintuitive makes it easier for people to reject them. And it also makes it even easier to reject when the community, your community, um, whether it's a politically conservative community or a religiously conservative community, has decided that those ideas are inconsistent with other values they hold. While there have been books before on the importance of science literacy, Science Blind takes a unique approach by showing how, in our early acquisition of knowledge, we build these models that can eventually lead us astray. Schulman provides insights that science advocates and educators can use, arguing for new curriculums that help students guard against intuition-based beliefs and that helps them build science-based understandings of the world. Given our current political climate, the book couldn't be more timely. That's Science Blind by Andrew Stolman. And that's it for this month. Please leave us a comment on the Science Books blog, Books et al., and join us again next month for May's new book. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aans.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.